Welcome back, everyone, to another cool episode of Wild Connection, the podcast. This week is about weapons, fighting, and even a little bit of chemical warfare. Naturally, I'm talking about insects. So hang on, it's going to be a wild ride. Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Bertolin, but you can just call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I live in the United States with my beautiful senior cat, Senor Antonio Botones. I'm passionate about animals, and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this crazy, wild thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com. If you like my show, please subscribe to it so you never have to miss an episode. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Jen, and this is Wild Connection, the podcast. Today, I'm talking about insects, their weapons, how they're used in love and war, and how some scientists curious about why insects have elaborate weaponry use a little bit of creativity to get some answers. One of those scientists, Dr. Zach Emberts, is my guest today. Now don't forget, you can get the show notes on my website, jenniferverdelin.com, or on the podcast website, Wild Connection, the podcast hosted by Podbean. All right, let's get started. A little saying we're all familiar with is, all is fair in love and war. We can disagree about this, of course, but one thing we can observe in other species is that there is a heck of a lot of warfare going on in the name of love. There are many ways this can show up, from species that try to outsing or outdance their competitors, to the skull-crushing, head-slamming of bighorn sheep echoing in the canyons of Arizona. And then you have the mighty grappling beetles, adorned with elaborate weapons. That's our focus today. Now, when I was a graduate student at Northern Arizona University, my advisor, who was studying prairie dogs, had previously worked on a group of beetles called the Tenebrionids. This large group of beetles can be outfitted with horns and other weapons found in the mandible. That's the jaw, basically. Beetles are so diverse, though, that they make up over one-third of all described insect species. Dung beetles are outfitted with some of the most elaborate of these weapons, or horns, spears, basically ready to shank another beetle. And although male fighting does feature prominently in this group, not all of this fancy headgear is for combat. Some of it's just to impress the ladies who tend to like the males with the longest horns. Of course they do. But not all individuals are fighters, and not all females prefer the same thing. In the dung beetles in particular, some males never fully develop their horns, so they choose to be lovers and not fighters. How do they do this? Well, they simply dig their way around those big horned feisty males and get the girl of their dreams anyway. My guest today, Dr. Zach Emberts, works on a different group of bugs, 
the leaf-footed bugs, which, surprise, surprise, also have weapons and defenses. Him and his collaborator, Dr. John Weens, used some creative experiments to get a better understanding of what advantages males get from all this extra weaponry and whether or not some males are better at protecting themselves during a fight. Dr. Emberts is a National Science Foundation postdoctoral research fellow in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Arizona. I'm so excited to talk to Dr. Zach Emberts about his research. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, this is going to be great. We have a lot of exciting things to cover today, and it's involving elaborate weapons, why some animals have them, and what outfitting some giant mesquite bugs with a little extra body armor is telling us about all of this. So before we dive into all of that, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Uh, Sure. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Arizona, Um, and I'm broadly interested in understanding why animals look and behave the way that they do. So the research we're going to be talking about today is really looking at why animals have these diverse array of weapons um, and how they use those weapons. Okay. And what drew you to study, you know, are you generally interested in animal behavior? And then how did you zero in on weaponry and other animals? Yeah. So I would say I'm broadly interested even as a kid in animals. And that's really got me interested in pursuing different careers where I got to work with animals. So as I went through my education, I eventually landed on Um, being a researcher, specifically investigating animal behavior and their morphology. Wonderful. Now, I discovered you through a mutual friend, Dr. Ramona Walls, and she posted a photo of your recent research on these giant mesquite bugs. And I knew right away that anyone that makes basically little bits of clothing for bugs was someone I had to talk to. Um, But before we start talking about weaponry and why so many animals have elaborate fighting uh, structures, I'm kind of wondering, you know, this show's about connection. And so I'm always interested in how my guests experience and feel connected to nature. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And I guess the way I go about doing that is I really enjoy walks and hikes, specifically short walks. So we're talking like a two or three hour day hike. Um, And that's uh, living in Tucson, Arizona. There are plenty of opportunities to do that here. So I I try to do that um, at least once a week. And sometimes I can get it in a few more times. Okay. Now, is that the way you've always connected? Well, I would say walking in general, being out in nature, um, more so than doing hikes, right? So I recently moved to Tucson and there's great hiking opportunities here. But when I lived in states like Florida, they're much flatter states. Um, and it's I, I equate that more to walking as opposed to hiking. Sure, sure. Yeah, there are some fantastic hikes in uh, in Tucson. Uh, and I, I agree with you. It's such a wonderful way of feeling connected to nature. Now, your recent work is about fighting and, and weapons and defensive structures in other species, not in humans. Um, but I thought it would be good to start off with what do other animals typically fight about? Yeah, so... Uh, animals fight over lots of things. And if we, if we specifically narrow on fights within a species, so two individuals of the same species fighting, they fight um, largely over three things. And those could be food, that could be resources like shelter. And mm-hmm. the last thing would be mates. And I really focus on that last aspect. 
Okay, so basically food, space, and sex. Exactly. Yeah, so not so different from us, actually. <laughs> we tend to fight about a lot of those same things. Um, now, I recently had Dr. Katie Prudick on the show. She's in the School of Natural Resources at the University of Arizona. And we were talking about butterflies and how they fight. And really, it's just a lot of pushing and shoving. But they don't have any specialized structures for that kind of combat. Um, do we see any pattern across, across groups of species in terms of who has special structures that are designed for fighting and who doesn't? Yeah, so that's a great question. So there are a handful of species that fight and they don't have weapons. Butterflies are a great example of that. Um, there are some organisms like crickets that will also fight without weapons, although some crickets do have weapons and will fight with them as well. Um, but there are a lot of species that will fight and that do have weapons, right? And the species that have these weapons are often fighting over resources um, or mates. And, and the reason they're fighting over those resources is because it's what their mates prefer or where they prefer to be. Okay, so at the end of the day, it really comes down to sex <laughs> yes. for, some, for a lot of these. Okay, so there's a lot of fighting going on for sex. And before we dive into this, um, you know, what is the process like from, you know, if you're studying animal behavior and, and the evolution of certain behaviors, what's sort of the process, um, you know, by which things evolved? You know, is there like we know about natural selection, is there sort of an analog when it comes to sex? Uh, and we refer to this as sexual selection would be the analogous to the natural selection components. Okay, so what does that what does that mean, sexual selection? So we're talking about sexual selection. We really mean uh, differential access to mates, right? So if we're talking about males and females within a population, some males might have more uh, get more mating opportunities with females than other males. So we we see this uh, distribution of mating success, right? Variation in this mating success, and it's really this variation in mating success that is driving some males to be more successful than others. And by success, I mean successful in leaving their offspring into the next generation. How does this result in weaponry or other elaborate kinds of structures? Right. So there are cases when uh, males can control access to territory. So if you think of resources are really clumped together, a male might be better at uh, keeping other males away from that resource, right? So if mm -hmm. there's a defendable resource, um, that tends to lead to selection for the, these types of elaborate weapons. Okay. And so what's, uh, so the advantage then is that you, you are able to either secure a space that uh, mates, potential mates might prefer, or you're able to better keep competitors out of your space. And, and yet it's not without risk, right? All of this kind of fighting. Yeah. So definitely there are some risks associated with fighting. Um, and some of these uh, fighting can result in injury. And, and very rarely, these injuries can also result in death, or the fights themselves can also result in death. Okay, so so that's one cost, right? Uh, if we're thinking about like costs and benefits of certain behaviors, like being, you know, fighting and engaging in physical combat carries with it some some risk of injury. But also, are these uh, structures that some and we're, we're talking about males now in particular that some males may, uh, you know have in different species? Like I'm thinking particularly of antlers in in elk. I mean, they're they're made of bone, and so they're really Really kind of expensive. 
Um, is this something that we see across species where these weapons are, are kind of, they're not cheap to make? Uh, yeah, that's, that's generally across the board. That's what we see. So when we talk about general patterns, I feel like there's always exceptions to the rule, but that is definitely the general pattern that these weapons are costly to develop. Okay. And so are they uh, now, now I mentioned elk, which are really big, but I also noticed that there's a lot of insects and smaller things with elaborate weapons and like what's going on in particular with beetles that so many of them seem to have these elaborate structures. Right. So I, I work a lot with insects and the reason why is, is because they're so diverse, right? So we think about all the described species out there, 60% of those species are going to be insects. Um, wow. So there's just a lot more insects out there, right? And we really see um, weaponry evolving in two main lineages or, or groups of animals. We see them in, in vertebrates, right? So we're talking about like rams and deer. We also see them in arthropods, which would include things like crabs and insects. Now, some of those weapons, are, are, especially I know in dung beetles, are like really spectacular. They've got horns and spears and pitchforks. And, and, um, and is that because there's such a broad diversity in dung beetles? Or is there something special about dung beetles? And why so many different types? Like, why not just make horns? Like, why doesn't everybody just have horns? Right. So there, there are two things here. So one is species that have weapons and species that don't. Right. So even within dung beetles, some some have horns and some do not. And those that have horns often are able to defend a specific resource, like a patch of dung that's easily defendable, whereas those that don't, um, it's much harder for them to defend a resource. So that's when we're talking about the presence or absence. So diversity is uh, really interesting. So like you said, we see this wide diversity of beetle horns. Some have spears, some have things that look like tridents. And we as a scientific community don't have a great understanding of why we see the diversity of weapons that, that we do. So it's one of my main uh, research focuses right now is trying to understand why these weapons are so diverse. Right, which leads us into one of the groups that you looked at is the leaf-footed bugs. Why are they a good group to focus on? Yeah, so just like the beetles, another group of insects, and they have a huge diversity in their weapon forms. So when these individuals fight, the two males will come together and they'll compete and they'll use their hind legs to actually engage in these competitions. And their hind legs are much bigger than their front or middle legs. And they have these spines all over their legs, which they use to squeeze um, the rival that they're competing with. Um, so two things that make them great is one, that there's this big diversity of weapon shape and size in this clay or this group of animals. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing is that when they fight, you can actually see the some of the damage from the fight, right? So we can see, I guess you can think of it as like a, I don't, yeah, a good way to think of it would be a way to see fighting behavior by looking at morphology, right? So there's a something left over that we can quantify that is an artifact to their fighting behavior. All right, now, so so do they like grapple and and like how do you how do they squeeze their opponent? <laughs> like, is yeah. it wrestling? And they like I, I know we have a video that we're going to include in the show notes for the for the listeners, but like in general for this group of insects, which I think has over, but this family has over eighteen hundred species, right? Right. Um, and, and 
the best way, thing that I compare it to would be like a college wrestling, right? So if you okay. can imagine what college wrestling or Olympic wrestling looks like, it's, it's going to be very similar to that style of fighting. So less judo, more wrestling. Exactly. Okay. You mentioned that you can see the the pattern of injury in sort of, you know, the victim, if you will, or potentially the loser. Um, do, do males get hurt? And is it like wrestling, like literal wrestling where there's a winner and a loser? Um, yes. So for the first part, they can get injured. Um, and it's part of our work is quantifying the type of injury they get. So how costly are these injuries? Um, and then the second thing is, I'm sorry, what was the second part of the question? <laughs> um, so is there, a, is there a clear winner, right? Is there always like a winner yes. in the fight? So yes, and there's also a clear winner, um, almost always a clear winner. So when these, when two individuals come together and fight, one individual, after they fight, one individual will remain on the resource and the other individual will leave the resource. So we consider the winner to be the individual that stays at the resource. Now, how... Like, what is the pattern of injury that you see in some males that have lost or even if they've won, they may not have come away kind of unscathed, right, uh, from the interaction. So what kinds of injuries do they get? Yes, yeah, so the injuries in the insects I work with is largely constrained to the wings. So that's that's where we see most of the damage occurring. Is this damage ever so severe that they can't fly anymore? Uh, so that's a great question and one we're currently investigating right now. So yes, the damage is, is severe in some cases enough that it will affect an individual's flying ability. Wow. Now, I know in some species of leaf-footed bugs, the females might be witness to the fights. And, and, and I'm wondering, I don't know about the, we're going to zero in on the species that you um, have done some really neat experiments with the giant mesquite bugs. But in general, I mean, if they're, if they're defending a, a, a space, then the female may or may not be watching. But are there some species where the females watch these fights? Uh, yeah, so it, it depends, right? It's context dependent, species dependent. So sometimes females are present during these fights and sometimes they're not. So there's some evidence to suggest. Um, so my PhD advisor, Dr. Christine Miller, she did some work investi investigating how males fight, if they fight with different intensities, whether or not there's a female present in the fighting arena, if you would. This is so fascinating um, because I'm wondering, you know, of course, now I'm wondering, like, if a male is a territory holder and he's already won a fight, is he more likely to win the next time? Is there like a winner effect that that males experience kind of like a home field advantage? Uh, so we've not looked at this in this specific clade, um, but in general, there seems to be some kind of uh, home field advantage in, in some species. So that definitely could be the case here as well. Did you notice that some, it, it, you know, when you looked at this sort of broad comparison in this group of, uh, of, of um, leaf-footed bugs, uh, that some individual males had more kind of uh, pronounced or better developed weapons? Yeah, so within the group of leaf-footed bugs, weapon size and shapes varies a lot. So like I said, it, it's, they use their legs, right, to fight. So okay. some, if, if, we're, if we use humans as an example, so we see variation in legs as well. So some um, humans have large quads or very large quads. Mm -hmm. um, and we see the same thing in these, in these insects. So some individuals have legs that have much more muscle in the quad region. Um, 
and the size of their quads are larger as well. And then sometimes we see the spines are in different locations. So uh, would it be on, if keeping with the human analogy, would the spine be on the calf or would it be on the hamstring, right? Okay. So location of those spines differ and then the number of spines. So sometimes um, some species have a single spine and then I can't remember the, the largest amount of spines, but I think it's somewhere close to like 12 up in that region, right? So there's you get a lot of variation in the number of spines on the weapons. So not only do they, some of them have larger legs uh, for, I, I presume for better squeezing, uh, but what are these spines and are they, are they part of the weaponry that injures their opponents? Uh, so yes, like you said, the, the muscles, it's really what's doing the squeezing um, and the spines are where the force of that squeeze is being applied, right? So if you imagine when we see these holes on the wings or this damage on the wings, often it's from those spines getting pushed right into those wings and then squeezing um, the rival male, right? Essentially leaving a puncture wound um, on those wings. Oh my goodness. Okay. This is, boy. All right. So now I'm curious that one strategy could be to, you know, for a given male, one strategy could be to develop or have stronger legs and more spines, or maybe there's slight variation in the positioning of those spines. But another strategy could be to develop better defenses. Do we see this as well? Yes, this is a great question. We have not looked at this yet, um, but definitely something I'm interested in pursuing down the line. So what we do know is within a single species, we see variation in defense, right? So some males um, appear to have better uh, ability to defend against damage, right? So less likely to be punctured than other males. Okay. Do they have any particular structure that's better developed that prevents like puncturing as easily or? Yeah. So I was, I was explaining before that it is the wings that are getting damaged. So when you think about an insect, some insects fold their wings on, on their backs, right? right? So when their wings are folded on their backs, they have um, it's really the four wings that are on top. So it's the four wings that are, is what we see. And some insects, have, their four wings are hardened. How thick those four wings are um, could indicate the puncture resistance of those wings. And what we see is that some males have thicker four wings than other males. Okay, so they're sort of uh, they've they've got a little bit of uh, like a medieval armor from the Middle Ages going on on their forewings that protects them better from a spear essentially piercing that wing. That's exactly right. That's great. Now, okay, we're going to get to the specifics of your very cool experiments with giant mesquite bugs, but. And probably for those people that live in the Tucson area, they're very familiar with this species, at least in terms of seeing them at certain times of year, but not necessarily anything about their behavior, their biology. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about giant mesquite bugs? Um, yeah, so giant mesquite bugs are very abundant in Tucson, right? So when I go out and I'm collecting these insects, you can find them in thousands, right? Um, so they're very, very abundant and they are sexually dimorphic. And by that, I mean the males and the females look differently. So that what makes the males different from the females is that these males have these enlarged hind legs, which they use to fight with. And the females don't have these same structures. So that it's really easy when we're looking at these insects to distinguish a male from a female. Males will 
um, they feed on mesquite trees. So males will fight over resources on these mesquite trees. So feeding sites on these mesquite trees um, where females will come to feed on. Okay. Now, are, are they colorful? Are they just kind of ordinary looking bugs? Like, Oh, that's a great point. They are um, quite bright red. Um, they have all other colors as well. So they're, there's a little bit of black and brown in them, but mm-hmm. they are quite red in color. Okay. So now this is like tangentially related to the question, but a lot of times colorful things are kind of toxic. Are, are they toxic to like, are there predators that feed on them? Are they tasty? Are they, you know, kind of noxious? Uh, do they have any predators at all? Uh, so yes, they have predators. So the one I know for sure are bats are the, some bats will feed on them. Um, and they also have a, I would say a noxious secretion, right? So they do release, um, pheromones, um, and they, those likely serve an anti-predatory defense. Okay. So, and is it like, where does this noxious pheromone come from? (laughs) Um, in what capacity? Well, what part of the body do they release it from? Oh, yes. So I don't know the exact terminology of what it's called, right? So there's very specific terminology for where these things come from. And I can look it up and, and give you more information later. Um, but essentially, it's the it, it comes, it's released between their mid and hind legs. That's that's where the secretion is released from. Okay. And, but it's, it's not like a puff of smoke or anything that's visible. It's just a chemical release. It is, it is a chemical and liquid release. Oh, okay. There you go. So there, they got at least a, another layer of protection, but this time against other species. Um, and okay, so we've learned a little bit about them. We've learned where the forewing is on them. We've learned how they fight. Now you wanted to see, if I'm correct, that if if having a sort of thicker forewing gave more protection, as you notice, some individuals had variation in the thickness of their forewing. And so you kind of added a little extra to some individuals. How did you, how did you do this? Yeah. So we were really interested in looking at two things, right? So we're interested in looking at whether damage influences who wins the fight and coupled on top of that, whether if we reduce the amount of damage by providing individuals with more armor, if that also influenced uh, who would win the fight. So essentially what we did is we wanted to place armor on some of these individuals to prevent or reduce damage from occurring during these fights. And we wanted to see if those individuals that had armor on them were more likely to win than those that did not have armor on them. Okay. So the first, oh, go ahead. No, no, no. Okay. So that's a great summary of sort of the, the, the main thrust of your, your inquiry, right? And so how big are these bugs, first of all? So we know the scale that we're talking about. Yeah, they're, I would say they're about three inches long. Just okay. so quite large insects. Okay, so that's helpful, right? When you're thinking of adding some kind of armor. Yes, very helpful. <laughs> all right, so now how, okay, so many questions. How did you figure out how much, what material, like? Yeah, and I think this is, an underappreciated part of science, and it's it's something that I, I really enjoy with science, is, is the problem solving um, that you don't necessarily see in, in manuscripts, right? So right. Um, I was really interested in finding a way to prevent this damage, but I needed to put something that was both lightweight on the males so that they could still move and fight, and something that was also puncture resistant, right? Because I didn't, I didn't want the males to get injured during the fights. 
Right. So I, I went to a fabric store and I bought a whole bunch of different fabrics and I essentially just tested it out, right? How heavy is this fabric? How easy is it for me to puncture through this fabric? Um, and I tried a, a variety of different things and I ended up on a, what I would call like a faux or fake leather, um, that it was both puncture resistance enough for what, what I was doing and mm-hmm. light enough that it would not affect, um, the male's fighting behavior or movement or anything like that. Right. Because I know like with some species, I, I'm thinking about birds in particular. I know that uh, when they use GPS, uh, uh, little backpacks on birds, they've got to be really careful about the weight because metabolically birds are kind of on the edge of death all the time. And, you know, and any extra weight that they have to kind of lug around could make the difference of, you know, whether they survive or don't survive. And so what, can you give us a sense of the size and the weight that you were able to add that did not influence sort of the behavior or the metabolic kind of energy balance, right? That they have to, to meet every single day. Uh, yeah. So it was a 12 millimeter by 16 millimeter piece of, of, fake leather. Um, so I don't know what, what that conversion is in inches. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. It's small. It's small. It's small. Yes. <laughs> and, and what, how much did it weigh? Uh, so I actually don't know that off the top of my head. I would have to look that up for you. Oh, okay. All right. So, and do you glue it on or like, yeah. So we wanted to stay on. So we used a, a non-toxic glue. So people in the U.S. are familiar with like Elmer's glue. So this is the same kind of a glue that um, kids in like kindergarten would use. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is this is the we used Elmer's glue to glue it onto the insects. Now, okay. So now we're going to get to sort of this. I want to definitely talk about the way that you structured the the fighting and the combat to test these ideas. But let's talk a little bit about you know. People don't necessarily always think about ethics when it comes to insects, um, but sort of was there permanent damage done in, in even the adding of this, uh, let's call it pleather, um, to the bugs? It, it was non-toxic glue. Could it be removed after the experiments were done? And you know, how did you make these kinds of decisions? First, I'll say the leather armor was removable, so you take it off at the end of the experiment. Um, but also when we fight insects and insects in general, um, it's definitely important to take ethics into consideration and something we definitely did as well. Uh, so the first thing is when we put individuals together to fight, they don't have to fight. And if they don't fight, that's completely fine. They're not put into another trial. Um, there's that single trial. They don't fight. That's it. They're done. We don't use them for any more fighting trials. The second thing I'll say is that we're really interested in damage, right? So in understanding how damage influences contest outcomes. And there's two ways you can look at this. There one way you can look at it is to increase the amount of damage that you're causing during the fight. And mm-hmm. the other way is to decrease the amount of damage you cause during the fight, right? So when you t- talk about ethics and thinking about ethically designing experiments, we just decided to go with the path of preventing the damage from occurring um, just because we thought it'd be a more ethical approach. Yeah, I, th- I, I think that's fantastic. One, that you consider that. And two, going back to what you were saying about this part of science in terms of problem solving and finding ways to answer the questions you're interested in, not just with the material, but also in a way that minimizes the you know negative impacts on the species that you're studying. So I think that's fantastic. And what did you find? With regards to? 
Sorry. your results. Yeah. What did you find okay. out? Like what happened? Right. I know we have video of them fighting and it's sort of what, what, what did you uncover after going on? And I know you had some controls. So you have, you have males that don't have anything added. Then you have sort of another control, which is adding something, but that wouldn't add protection. If, is that right? That's correct. And then you have your final sort of experimental, you know, material that is designed to reduce the possibility of of damage. And then you put males together, and and so how what 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 did you discover? Yeah. So I'll first talk about our control results because it's always important to talk about controls first. So we had males that had nothing added to them. We didn't manipulate them in any way. And we had also had males where we added the armor, but in a location where damage does not occur. Right. So they had the same amount of weight to them. They had the same amount of glue. And what we found is that those where the leather was added and those where nothing was added, um, they had similar fighting outcomes, right? So the male was just as likely to win if he had armor as he did without the armor. If, okay. Specifically when it was in a location where damage does not occur. Now, when we talk about our treatment, now this time the, the leather armor is in a location where damage occurs. And what we see is when there's an individual has armor that prevents damage from occurring, that they have a, a much better chance of winning the fight uh, than either of our control or our baseline treatments. Is that because they can fight longer? Uh, I mean, what do you attribute that success to? Right. So if we're talking about there are mathematical models out there that try to explain when individuals will flee a fight. And an assumption in a lot of these mathematical models is that as costs of fighting are accumulating, and one way you can accumulate a cost of fighting is by getting injured, the individual will eventually leave the fight once they pass some threshold. So they're accumulating costs, accumulating costs. Eventually they're, they reach the threshold and they're like, I'm out of here. What we, um, I guess, are hypothesizing that's driving this pattern is that individuals with the armor did not accumulate those fighting costs as quickly, right? Because they're not getting injured right. to nearly the same degree as these other individuals are. So because they're not accumulating these costs, they don't reach that threshold as fast. So they're, they're more likely to stay at that resource and continue fighting for it. So you gave them a leg up. We gave them a leg up. <laughs> well, you know, listen, I, I, there's always been that saying, love is a battlefield. And this, uh, all of this is really showing how that is true. What's next for your, you know, this kind of line of inquiry and for you in terms of your research? I'm still broadly interested in understanding weapon diversity and understanding who wins these fights, right? So I guess those are the two major research aims that I'm interested in continuing related to what we talked about here today. We explored some hypotheses for why we see the weapon diversity we see um, throughout animals. Um, and I would like to continue to investigate other hypotheses, right? So these hypotheses are not mutually exclusive. By that, I mean more than one of these hypotheses can be applicable to a certain group of animals. So I want to continue investigating the factors that are responsible for driving the weapon diversity that we see. And the other thing I'm really interested in investigating is, is who wins these fights, right? There's been, as I was saying earlier, a lot of mathematical models trying to predict who's going to win a fight. And in these mathematical models, they make assumptions and they make predictions, right? So are these assumptions valid assumptions to be making? And do we see the predicted pattern that, that these models um, 
um, put out. So these are, I guess, lines of inquiry that I'm planning to continue during my postdoc. That's wonderful. And, you know, it's interesting. I was sort of, as I was listening to you and contemplating what you were saying about you know, those males that had that protection, they didn't potentially reach that threshold. Um, so they weren't incurring the cost. You know, it's kind of making me think about when we think about, um, you know, warfare in, in other systems, including human systems or combat in humans, like usually I, I, my feeling is, and I could be wrong, but just sort of casually observing no empirical data about this, that if there, if an individual doesn't incur a cost for aggression and combat and, and fighting, then they're more likely to continue that behavior. Correct. The cost, we'd expect the cost to really um, constrain the evolution of the behavior of that trait. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing your research with us. And, you know, I love the the giant mesquite bugs and I, I, I encourage everybody to go to the show notes. You can watch the video and see pictures of them. And I'll also provide links to, um, you know, the papers and, uh, and uh, if you want to reach out to um, Dr. Zach Emberts about what he's doing, we'll have his link on, on Twitter and, and thank you so so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks again for having me. Okay, I love this topic. And if you want to learn more about weaponry in other animals, there's also a terrific book by Dr. Doug Emlin called Animal Weapons, The Evolution of Battle. You can find a link to the book on my show notes at jenniferverdelin.com. Okay, so after Dr. Zach Emberts mentioned that the giant mesquite bug engages in chemical attacks used for a defense mechanism, I decided to dig a little deeper into these volatile chemicals that insects produce, where they store them, and most importantly, how they release them. Are they farting? This is the big question. But as I dug into this, little did I realize that there is a long history of humans using insects as warfare agents. Needless to say, this will have to be an entirely different episode. But for now, on the topic of chemical warfare, I'll leave you with a few tidbits. As it happens, Many insects produce volatile organic compounds that are designed to basically repel others. Who do they want to repel? Well, anything that's threatening them. Stink bugs are pretty famous, and of course they're called stink bugs because, well, they stink and they release a stinky smell. They have this special gland in their thorax, which is basically in the middle of their body, that produces this smelly cocktail of chemicals. Research on the twice-stabbed stink bug. Wonder how it got that's name. That sounds like another podcast. Anyway, it produces about 11 different volatile compounds, and no one, not various birds or lizards, wants anything to do with the foul smell they emit. So it's pretty effective as a deterrent. In the specific leaf-footed bug that Dr. Emberts talked about, the adult giant mesquite bug releases hexoacetate, hexanol, and hexanel. Where do they release this from? From their abdomen when they're disturbed. So basically, they're not farting. Unless you think maybe they're farting out of their abdomen, which, let's go with that. That seems more fun. Interestingly, we use hexyl acetate as a solvent um, for resins, and we use hexanol 
H-E-X-A-N-A-L, to give a fruity flavor in our food, and it acts as a preservative to also increase shelf life. Don't worry, it's FDA approved. As you can see, this is worthy of a show all on its own. So for now, that's all I'm gonna leave you with. Thanks for listening, and if you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, and don't forget to share it so others can find it and listen too.